Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guests today are Ben McBride, Executive Director of iPoor Life in Springfield, Missouri, Rachel Smith, Executive Director of Hope and Vine in Wake Forest, North Carolina, and Susan Punnett, Executive Director of Family and Youth Initiative in Washington, D.C. Welcome, everybody, to this podcast in the Aging Out Institute podcast series. We have three representatives from three different organizations today, and I want to give them an opportunity to introduce themselves and what their organizations do. Ben, if you could please give yourself an introduction and then a little bit about your organization. Sure, Lynn. Thank you very much again for the opportunity to come on today. My name is Ben McBride. I'm with iPoor Life, the executive director there out of Springfield, Missouri. We're sitting here in the heart of the Ozarks on a dreary day. But iPoor Life is a nonprofit here in southwest Missouri that's designed to match the youth that we work with up with a life coach that is certified in-house so that they can kind of help identify and apply their unique strengths in order to experience that successful, self-sufficient transition into adulthood that I think we're all hoping we can accomplish. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Ben. Rachel, how about if we jump to you next, if you could please introduce yourself and your organization? Yes, absolutely. So I am with Hope and Vine. We are in Wake County, North Carolina. We provide employment for young women who have aged out of foster care. And within that, we are able to provide mentoring and community for them. Thanks very much. And Susan? Thank you, Lynn. I am so excited to be here. When you said you were doing a podcast on relationships, it's like, oh, that is us. (laughs) I'm Susan Panette from Family and Youth Initiative, or DCFYI, in Washington, D.C. And we actually started as a program for teens in foster care, 12 to 21 in D.C., that is all about relationships. We think relationships are the most important thing that a young person can have. And so All of our activities are designed to create relationships for those young people and then also for youth who have already aged out of foster care. Wow. So it sounds like we've got the right people here for this conversation. (laughs) Everybody works in some form or fashion in building those relationships. Now, I think just to set the stage, we're talking about young people, older foster youth who are leaving foster care, branching out on their own. And research does show that one of the key success factors is having a relationship with at least one supportive adult that really helps them be able to transition into adulthood successfully. However, we know that it isn't necessarily easy to do this for a variety of reasons. So what I want to do is pose the question, we'll just start with what's the problem? What barriers do you experience? When you're working with these young people in facilitating healthy relationships, it would be great if we could just connect young people with adults and boom, done. But that's not how it works, as we know. So I pose the question. I'll let whoever would like to jump in and answer first do so. Well, I will if nobody else is. Trust. (laughs) You know, I mean, these are young people who have been let down so many times by adults that they are not going to just jump into a new relationship with somebody that they don't know 
Right. So, I mean, for us, a big piece of it is just consistency. If you keep showing up so that they can see that you're authentic and you really are committed, that's a first barrier that you need to get over. Yeah. And I would second that, which is one of the reasons that we use employment as the vehicle to build these relationships because it is kind of a neutral ground where everybody can come in without the expectations and the pressure of having to build that. And so those relationships are built naturally over a period of time. And then because we have been operating with like staff as mentors for these young people, and which has provided that consistency, right? So that trust can be built. You know, I know that this person's going to be here because they're employed just like I am. And yeah, so we're able to come along and build that. I think another big issue that we've had when we first started, we did have volunteer mentors, but then we found that it was really difficult to find the time for them to meet. We do work with some young adults who are in the 18 to 21 program, but most of our young adults are actually, they've aged out of that as well. So they're 22 and up. Most of them are working multiple jobs. They're trying to go to school, take classes. Some of them are trying to finish their GED. And there was just not the time to then try to coordinate with a volunteer who was juggling their work schedule as well. So again, simplifying it to where it's all happening within the work hours made it much simpler. Can I ask Rachel a question? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a conversation. <laughs> Do it. So I'm just curious whether once you've completed that employment goal, uh, however that goal is defined, what then happens with the relationship between the young person and the staff? Excellent question. So when they come to work with us, we ask them to commit to at least three months because really it takes longer than that to earn that trust, right? Yep. But at yep. least commit to that. And then they can stay as long as two years. The longest we have had someone stay is 18 months. And they're still in our lives all the time. (laughs) So that's why we also have a community piece of what we do. And that you don't ever age out of. As long as you need us, we are here. Wonderful. Rachel, it sounds like, yeah, we here at iPoor Life and your organization have very similar kind of mindset as it goes towards building that trust and the methods in which to do that. There's a couple other barriers that we have seen here working with 16 to 24-year-olds, so not everyone has aged out of care yet, but is what led to that distrust or the lack of trust. So overcoming isolation, some communication skills, just being able to identify the emotions that they're feeling putting those emotions into words sometimes takes a lot of time. Like you said, you know, that commitment for three months, Rachel, to your program is really critical because we're finding that it's taking four to six months just to cultivate that trust-based relationship so that we can move forward into our programming. Our programming typically lasts about nine months, but it's important for me to make sure that my staff is aware that they need to use their discretion and their gut I'm not trying to push our youth through the curriculum that we use. It needs to be on their time, and that's what's going to make the most sense and be most impactful. Yeah, I would say it is for sure. Six months is really when we start to see more progress. Right. Absolutely. 
in part because you need to spend that time building trust first, right? Because mm-hmm. otherwise you're just one more person coming into their lives <laughs> telling them what they should do. Absolutely. Right? Without them yeah. feeling like you've taken the time to get to know them. Yeah. Yep, that's it. Are you implying that when young people come into a program like yours, that the progress on goals, so imagine that might be part of what you're talking about, goals that they set and getting to those goals really is hampered by not having that relationship. And then once it's built, it flowers. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, that's our experience. I mean, we don't even start really talking about goals as the normal, you know, the education, workforce development, financial literacy skills, all of that, until about that four to six month mark. Before that, we are focusing on, on what is a healthy relationship and trying to create and define what those boundaries are for different types of relationships. We're talking about identity, and within our identity section, we're assessing them for their strengths. So we use those strength finders and give them five positive labels and try to start peeling away some of the negative labels that may have followed them through the years. We're talking about situational awareness and, again, the emotions that they're feeling that they may not be able to communicate in words, and that's maybe coming through actions instead. So those kind of relate together, that situational awareness and the emotion. It's all of that, but, you know, it's the trust factor, it's that trust-based relationship and that consistency that we've all three nailed down here in these answers that is going to determine success, I think, in any program that addresses the needs of these at-risk youth. Right. But how do you make the time as a program to build relationships with young people who are, particularly the ones who have aged out, needing to find a job, needing to find a place to live, saving money, you know, doing all the things, learning just how to live life skills? How do you build relationships when these needs are so great for the young people who have aged out? I mean, it's not an either or, right? I mean, for us, because we work with young people generally before they age out, we are trying to build relationships before so that by the time they age out, you know, we've already got that base. That would help. Yeah. And I mean, there are some things that are almost impossible to support somebody around if they don't trust you. I don't think you can separate the two. They're intrinsically intertwined. Yeah, I would agree with Susan there. I don't know that we're going to have any success if we're not establishing some type of relational base first and focusing on that, that we do care. We're just not another agency or referral that these youth that we work with are so used to. We're different in our approach. And Rachel, but your program has a parallel effort, right? And it's what you were saying is you're looking for Mm -hmm. that relationship being built while you're helping them toward their employment goals, right? Right. So and we're actually employing them. So they work as artisans. They make jewelry and apparel and accessories and all kinds of fun things. So then it's almost like we're doing art therapy all day long. It's so much easier to open up and share and have conversations when you're shoulder to shoulder rather than face to face. And there are definitely times where we are like having those face to face conversations. But that time that is spent being creative and making things, it's just amazing. I mean, there was one day we had, you know, a young woman came in and we started our day just, you know, how's everybody doing? We'll do a little devotional. And then she says, okay, can we start working? Because I have something I need to talk about. 
she couldn't talk <laughs> until she started working because she needed, you know, like she needed to work with her hands so she could talk. So it's really a neat environment where they don't always enjoy what they do. <laughs> like right now we have a young woman. She does not enjoy making jewelry. <laughs> <laughs> but she shows up and, you know, we try to give her some other things to do if she's really struggling, but we'll always find something for them to work on. But we do also try to help them get that next step because we are just a stepping stone. So we do work on the job placement as well. I love this phrase you use, shoulder to shoulder versus face to face. I know when I was working at Milton Hershey School many years ago, that was something that we told house parents is, look, if you're having trouble working with one of the kids in your house, instead of sitting down at a table with them to talk about it, go for a drive. Yes. Right? Do something together. Go for a walk. Do something together versus just sitting down in chairs facing each other. Yes, absolutely. We have volunteers drive teens to our events, which is where teens and adults in our program get to know each other and build relationship. And we will sometimes encourage or have a new volunteer drive a particular teen if it seems like they could be a fit, for example, for mentoring for that exact reason. And I always say to people, being in the car with a young person, you can have silence if they don't feel like talking. (laughs) There is nothing I have not discussed with a young person in the car. It is just such a great place to have those conversations. Susan, I love that. And that is so encouraging for me to hear you say that you have volunteers who do that. Because Lynn, when you were asking like what kind of barriers we have, another thought I have is this transportation. A lot of our young women don't drive or They either don't have a car or they don't have their license because they were in a group home that never got them their license when they were a teen. We get them Ubers to get to work, which is a little pricey. (laughs) And so- A lot pricey. (laughs) Yes. So we do fundraisers for that. And we have community organizations who will donate Uber gift cards. And we're so thankful for that. We were in the process of launching- a volunteer like that as a way for people to volunteer is to give them rides. Right. And I had a lady who she wants to serve in this way, but she didn't understand why she needed to go through the training for our volunteers. And I was like, oh, but that's when the real conversations happen. Like you need to be prepared. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. You need that's to know true. what could possibly come out in that 20 minute drive. So that's encouraging to know that that is working well for you. Yes, absolutely. There is no topic that doesn't come up, but you do need to be prepared because you don't want to say something like the thing you would say to your own child at 22 in response to what they might say, right? I mean, you need to be aware of how it's going to land differently and the different place that a young person who's been through the trauma of foster care is going to take some comment or some response that you might make. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is starting to get into the area of what are key practices for breaking through, if you will, to help young people build these relationships. And all, of course, I think going back to building trust. So Ben, I'll ask you, do you have any other strategies that you use to help bring young people out to help them connect with adults? Well, I think it's just confidence in themselves. Our whole goal is to provide the youth an opportunity to see life through a different lens when they've decided that they don't no longer need a coach or a life coach. And that's ultimately the goal is for them to make that decision. But along the way, yeah, there's some barriers there. 
And our strengths-based approach is, I think, how we overcome a lot of that. We really pay a lot of attention to that, spend a lot of time with our staff training and reinforcing on how to best use the strengths that each youth has been inherently given. That's probably one of the biggest key practices in breaking through is just allowing the youth to understand who they are. They need to redefine the relationship with themselves and their identity first before they can go out and start building new, healthy relationships with other supportive adults. We're talking about a really strong interpersonal time here of reflection, and but it's just that consistency. It's that confidence that's built up week after week that we have with them through those weekly sessions and all of the other touch points that happen throughout the week. Our life coaches, I mean, they're very committed to these youth and they do make themselves available, you know, even at times that I probably would not approve of. But it's amazing to see the progress that's made when there's that one supportive adult. And that's why we start with that life coach so that we can show them an example of what the healthy adult relationship looks like. And hopefully through the time they can mimic that and start creating other supportive relationships with adults in the community. So it sounds like helping them build their strengths and celebrating successes and all of that. Oh, sure. Yeah. Helps bring them out. It helps them build their confidence. And when they're feeling more confident, then they're potentially more willing to let somebody else in. I think so. We've all gone through this, right? It's just a matter of experience and trial and error. And I've been in awkward conversations that (laughs) it just doesn't work out. You know, you kind of, not for lack of a better word, date people to see what your common interests are and things like that, whether that's in your peer-to-peers or in your workplace or in your church or wherever it may be. The other key practice, I think, or another key practice that we have is while our youth that we serve are meeting with their life coaches one-on-one every week, there's a point in time where they need to start putting that into practice. And that's kind of what I highlighted in that first key practice that I mentioned. We have a programming element called our Social Capital Club, and we really do put an emphasis on building social capital, so building those healthy relationships. And so bringing all of our youth together in a group setting, at least on a monthly occasion, if not more often than that, kind of becomes the lab to our lectures is kind of how I like to see that. So while the youth are working with their life coaches one-on-one with these relational aspects and approaches and techniques and tools and everything else that goes on in those conversations, they get to use those in a non-threatening, safe environment during these social capital club meetings. It really does help reinforce what the youth are learning and talking about in those week-to-week meetings but also an opportunity to fail without having significant consequence, which is important. Right. I like the putting it into practice. And I imagine since you have life coaches, after the social capital club, they might have conversation about what went well, what didn't go well, how could you do things differently in the future, right? Typical coach kind of approach. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that you recognize that. It feeds off of each other. And that's how we really experience the growth and the development that we've designed our curriculum to establish and accomplish. So Rachel or Susan, do you use any particular tools or structure to help build relationships and make those connections with youth? I think for us, it's a lot of just time listening and asking questions. 
and being intentional about, like Ben was saying, like when we recognize a strength in them to call that out, because I think so many of them, they've not had adults who have seen their potential and believe that they had these capabilities. We also really focus on only having positive talk around the table, which is hard because sometimes it's fun to be sarcastic and kind of kid around. And I'm guilty of that. But, you know, our words and our self-talk is really important. We talk a lot about when they put themselves down and, you know, I don't know why, like, why do I keep doing this? You know, oh, I'm such a screw up. We talk about how like with every strength that there is a correlating weakness. I use superheroes because we all have a good superhero, right? So I talk about how the guy from X-Men who has shoots lasers out of his eyes, Cyclops. So, you know, like he's a good guy and he has this amazing power, but if he doesn't control it, he's going to hurt people. And so he has to wear those cool sunglasses so that he can focus his energy and focus his power. And so it's like, oh, you mean I'm not bad for being this way? Like I can actually use that for good? Like, oh, this is a actually a superpower I have. And to just encourage them in that. And then I have this expression that I use when I'm around the girls is don't shit on me. <laughs> And when you live in the South and you say it real fast, it has like a double meaning, but we should on ourselves like, oh, I should do this or, oh, I should be better. No, like stop shooting on yourself. You are capable and good and and worthy of everything that everybody else has as well. And then just with the goal setting, our program director does a phenomenal job of that. She does that in a way that I could probably use her help on. But, you know, it's so important for them to set their own goals, right? So again, that way we're not shooting on them. We're not putting our expectations on them, but letting them set their own path. I love that reframing. That's a really powerful tool. Definitely. You remind me of, now I'm dating myself here, years ago, something big was transactional analysis. Mm Mm-hmm. And I remember them talking about like each person has in them a child, adult, and a parent. And you want to focus on really building out the adult. It's fine to let your child out sometimes, but the parent is the should, Mm. right? It has its place, (laughs) but like you're saying, not too much, right? Right. You know, yeah, you should have rules, but within the adult framework, not the parent Uh wagging their finger framework. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Nice. Well, I haven't thought about that in years. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask this because Rachel, you mentioned listening and I want to get to Susan too, if you have any other tools or structure that you use. But first, do you do any training on listening skills, any of you for your adults so that they can really listen effectively? Because we know that hearing is not the same as really listening. So we do include that in our mentor training. And we talk about like how to ask good questions. We do also. You know, it's one of those things that you can be trained on and then you can either forget or you have to practice, Mm -hmm. right? Oh, Mm -hmm. yeah. It is a skill. Yeah. Listening effectively, active listening. It is a Mm -hmm. skill. Mm -hmm. We address it in our training also. I think one thing that in addition to listening, though, and maybe Rachel and Susan may have comments on this, but 
It's also feeling and watching because not always are these youth that we're working with going to be able to speak the truth per se, but it's that body language and just kind of that gut feeling to be able to handle, you know, whatever circumstances they're dealing with that day, which is also part of our training. So we just kind of using all of our senses, Rachel, even our spidey sense. Um, <laughs> yes, nice time. Yeah. <laughs> to make sure that we're addressing the needs of the youth on that particular day. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. Their body language is huge. And that's something that I don't know. I mean, you can have a class in it for sure. And you can bring it to awareness of the people who are working with the young people about what to look for. But it really is knowing that young person, seeing, you know, what's changing or what are the signs of feeling down with that young person? Because it can be different with different youth. And I think that gets back to one of the, you know, how do you build trust is as a person, do you have someone in your life who actually notices those things, right? Which is true for any of us. But I think for a lot of the young people we work with, historically, they haven't had anyone like that. And so just knowing that there is someone who is paying enough attention to you that they remember what you were talking about last time they saw you, they see how you're presenting differently, they see the mood, you know, that they're open and empathetic and both want to be supportive and also just want to know what's going on and are going to ask you in a way that feels comfortable that you might actually be comfortable opening up and sharing whatever that is. Yeah. And so just, you know, a common day-to-day example of that, that our coaches kind of utilize is, is the listening skill and listening to what these youth's favorites are. And so in our week-to-week meeting, if it's face-to-face that particular week, maybe our coach will pick up a Coke, which was their favorite soft drink or candy. or yep. And that really, that builds a lot of credit. You know, it's just those little things that we can pick up on just being present with these youth when we have the opportunity to do so. And being present in more just than physical presence, but being present in every sense of the word. Well, because everybody wants to be seen, to feel seen, right? And to feel like someone cares. Paid enough attention to know that's their favorite drink or candy or whatever it is. Right. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, Susan, I didn't want to forget you. If you had any other like structure or program or model that you use there to help build up young people, bring them out. So I think we're a little different in that, and I said this in the beginning, we're really about relationship first. So we're not focused on specific outcomes for our young people. It's really getting comfortable with us, getting to know people, building relationships. Not structure in in the way that Ben or Rachel have talked about, more just consistency of bringing people together, creating those opportunities for relationships to start and then nurturing them so that they can grow from there. Right. Okay. What's a good frequency? All right. So not every organization has a mentoring program or a coaching program where they can meet often just by the nature maybe of what they do. But what's the ideal frequency so that you can build a relationship? When our young women are working, they work two days a week. I think that has been so good to establish that relationship. I think once a relationship is established, that that can change. A lot of friendships are like that, right? Like when you're early in relationships, you spend more time together. And then as you get more secure in it, you maybe don't need to talk as often. 
with our young women who have left the employment but are still connected with us, we make a point to reach out, take them out to lunch, at least have a phone conversation, you know, depending on what is going on in life. We do that at least once a month. There's always some reason why there's another contact point in there, but that is the minimum is once a month. Okay. Ben or Susan, what do you think? Well, the design of our program provides that we're going to meet with them on a weekly basis. And I think that that, you know, just kind of the motivation behind our and purpose of our curriculum requires that. And I think that that's good for what we're doing. I mean, there's a lot of resources out there that, you know, it has that once a month threshold to build a true relationship and build is the key word there. I think we've got to have more contact than that. And I'll give my life coaches credit. It's not just once a week that they're meeting or talking with these, with the kids that we're serving. I mean, last year, I think through text messages, Facebook posts, you know, all of that back and forth that this a day and age allows, we had 36,000 contacts from our youth with 42,000 responses from our coaches in 2022. So I don't know that you can put a number on it. You know, if the goal is to build a healthy, successful relationship, you got to do what it takes, right? And so that's kind of the, again, going back to the discretion that I want my coaches to have and listening to their gut, they need to be, you know, take care of those youth and satisfy their needs to, you know, their relational needs with boundaries, of course. But one other thing in this regard, kind of on the meeting on our, is the results we found with the pandemic. What we found was we don't necessarily need to meet with them face-to-face, especially this generation. Our engagement rate in moving to a virtual model where we only meet with them once a month in person or once every other week in person, depending on the youth, our engagement rate has gone up significantly. And so that was a kind of a win-win scenario because now we don't have the costs of travel as much and you know, there's fallout there, good and bad. But anyway, just a couple of observations and points from our programmatic standing. It's an interesting observation how technology has changed this kind of work with young people. If you embrace the technology like texting, then you think about young people who aren't in foster care how often they might text their parents with a question or, hey, I did this today or whatever. I know with my nieces, almost constant. They're young 20s. And they're always writing my sister messages via text. So I think that's an interesting observation and that maybe programs should consider embracing that if they haven't already. Well, we have. And I can tell you that it's gone a long way with the youth that we served over the last year and a half. And I guess my perspective is a little different because we are focused on relationships with volunteers unlike a staff focus where you can have meetings every week or, you know, whatever your schedule is, we can't do every week because that's just more than we could ask of volunteers. I mean, it depends upon the young person and the adult. We've had people come to an event and meet each other and just something clicks really quickly. And then they build from there. We've had other youth who can take a long time to warm up enough to say that they might be interested in building a relationship with a specific adult. I definitely think in the beginning, in-person is important. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that, Susan. Then there's this whole other, like, all of the texting and the phone calls and the more texting than phone calls, I would say, 
contact that goes on and definitely somebody who can respond in the moment when there's some something that is really important to a young person and they would love to have someone reasonably quickly get back to them in some way. It doesn't all need to be in person at that point by any means, but it definitely helps in the beginning. And Susan, you bring up a good point, kind of historically from my poor life's perspective, the organization that I'm with, we tried to do our life coaching method with volunteers, but you're mm-hmm. right. I mean, it was just too much. And so that's why we've gone to the week to week model with staff members, you know, paid life coaches. And so I completely understand the month to month meetings from your organizational standpoint. And I think that that's great. I'm very familiar with other organizations where that's the key and there's a lot of good that's happening. From our perspective, you know, we are somewhat outcome based. Like while we give the discretion on the front end to build that relationship, we do want to push these kids that we're working with to grow and to develop and to expand their experiences. And so if we did meet on a monthly basis, I don't know, I think some of that would get lost. A little bit of that pressure, that challenge to save $500 or to create a budget and submit applications and make an education plan or whatever the case may be. But yeah, on a volunteer basis, we wouldn't be able to do it. We haven't been able to do it that regularly. Yeah. So Ben, that's what we faced because we started with the volunteer. That did not work for us. Right. How many clients does each of your life coaches work with at a time? 15 to 20. No more than 20. Okay. Okay. I try to keep it pretty reasonable because... That's amazing. I think if you get over that 20 mark, then we're not given the attention that the relationship requires. Yeah, that's a really cool model. Thank you, Lynn, for bringing us together. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) And there are, of course, programs out there that have amazing volunteer programs like Susan's. So it Mm -hmm. really just depends on the program, the goals, the structure, you know, how it's put together. So every organization is going to be unique. But what I'm hearing is that there may be a once a month minimum Mm -hmm. for building relationships. You know, it's just so hard, right? Yeah. I mean, if you see somebody every six months or something, and nice to see you, but I'm not going to commit to getting to know you or you obviously don't think I'm that important because you're not willing to see me more. You know, you're not interested in getting together more frequently. Mm -hmm. So why should a young person invest in a relationship or think that it's worth investing in a relationship if they're not seeing someone frequently? Right? I mean, the same would be true with us with anyone. You recognize sometimes there's reasons people can't get together more than that. But if somebody really wanted to get into a relationship with you, you would hope that they would make themselves more available than very infrequently. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I aged out of foster care myself. And I remember very distinctly my senior year, I actually made a conscious decision not to get to know anybody mm. because I was only in that school one year. Yeah. And my yeah. senior year. And I'm like, why? Why bother? Mm -hmm. So you have that potential too with young people in and coming out of foster care is just, this person isn't going to last in my life. So why should I even try? Yep. Right. Because if that's your experience. Yeah, exactly. Well, I tell you what, I really wish we could (laughs) just continue on for two or three hours, but unfortunately we are already (laughs) coming down to the end (laughs) of the time. But I do want to get to at least one other question, which, you know, other organizations may well be interested in which is what kind of training or experience does your organization emphasize with your staff 
or possibly volunteers to be ready to overcome the barriers that we've talked about, to do the strategies and skills and practices that we've discussed to build those healthy relationships with supportive adults. So what do your organizations do? Why don't I throw it to you first, Susan? So, I mean, it is a piece of our training is to try to be very realistic about the challenges so that as much as possible, people are prepared ahead of time that this is going to be fabulous, but it's also going to have its challenges. And here are some of what those might look like. And this is how you try to get, how do you work through them? And then just to provide a lot of support and a lot of community and others who can help if you run into those kind of challenges so that you're willing to hang in there and work through them and remember to try to see what's going on from the young person's point of view, which is coming at this from a very different perspective than mine might be, or yours as the adult in this relationship might be. Right. Thank you. Rachel, how about at your organization? We really emphasize having good boundaries for our staff and volunteers, for them to be able to communicate those boundaries with the young women and to encourage them to be able to communicate their boundaries as well. That way there's not unrealistic expectations and then there's hurt feelings. And then that breaks that whole trust thing that we've been talking about. We do talk a lot about boundaries and for them to, you know, before they commit to doing something to, yeah, just be realistic about what kind of time capacity do you really have to be able to offer. Better to under offer and over deliver, right? And then another thing that we really encourage for our people is to be comfortable with suffering. And that is because it's really hard to sit with someone in the middle of a mess when they are hurting and not just try to rush in and fix it for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I struggle with that, right? Like, well, I could totally fix this for you. Like, let me fix this for you and then we'll all feel better. (laughs) But that's not empowering them, right? Like what they need is for someone to believe that they are capable and strong enough to overcome these obstacles that they're facing. Then the really hard part is that at some point you do face an obstacle where you can't help if you wanted to. There is truly nothing I can do to fix this problem for you. All I can do is sit here with you in your suffering. In that moment, it is so tempting to just say, I can't handle this. I got to walk away. Mm -hmm. And that is what we cannot do because that is what has happened to them their whole lives. And we don't want to add to that. Rachel, that is incredible. And that's so key. The confidence that we're building in that youth that we're going to be available and there for them. You know, the culture that we try to train our life coaches and our staff on is exactly that. That's impressive. And I appreciate you bringing that up and explaining your approach to that. Our program, our coaching program is called Life Strengths. And there's a certification process that goes into that. It's about a week long, 25, 30 hour certification process. Within that, and what we part of on our volunteers, We've got a section of that certification that is just on how to communicate with teens and then introducing, you know, the issues that our particular teens may be dealing with. Trust-based relationships, 
We spend a lot of time on that. My staff has gone through a continuous training over the last year and a half on that. Being trauma-informed is really important to us. It's simple things like this Tuesday, we had a mock interview exercise at our office. You know, one of the common questions in an interview is, how do you perform under stress or how do you handle stress? Well, that could be a triggering factor. And so being trained to look out for those and help our youth prepare for those types of questions in advance so that when they do get to the interview, it's not a complete breakdown moment and something that will set them back. Being trauma-informed in, you know, in the day-to-day, but also having a future-focused approach to that as well in how to overcome some of those scenarios that our youth are going to face when they enter into adulthood. And just how to be continuously motivational in our approach. Growth and develop means we're moving the ball down the field or advancing. We're not staying stagnant for too long. And so having some motivational skills is also important for us as well. Wow, that's just wonderful. Everything that you do for the young people in your organizations, for the adults who are working with them. I am so glad that we brought together the three of you for this conversation because this is something that so many organizations are striving for, the ideal program to build healthy, supportive relationships between adults and the young people in their organization. And I'm very hopeful that as other organizations listen to this, that they take away some nuggets from the things that you all do and are able to apply them in their programs. I just think that would be a wonderful outcome for this. And I really appreciate you all being here for this conversation. This has been really fun. Thank you, Lynn. Yes, I really enjoyed talking me. with everyone and learning <laughs> from what others are doing. Same. It's an absolute pleasure. It has been amazing. I just wish maybe this is a lesson. Maybe I should make this more like an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> to allow for more conversation. But unfortunately, we are at the end of our time. And I thank you again very much for participating. Thank you if you've listened to the podcast to the very end for doing so. We put out a podcast every couple of weeks or so. This is the first topic focused podcast, but we will have more throughout the year. So come back to the website, agingoutinstitute.org and look for our podcast link and you can find them there. Or you can sign up for pretty much any podcast distributor and you'll be able to find our podcast helping foster youth prepare for adulting. And then you can sign up to get notifications for that. So thank you all very much. Until next time.